Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by a repeat guest and my very dear friend, Micah Michelin. Micah has been growing and automating online businesses since I was first figuring out HTML. He's co-owner of Memberium and now also Wishlist member. Micah has helped hundreds, if not thousands of businesses successfully launch, grow, and sell online membership programs. He's a great guy. I've known him for probably about 10 years now, even though we haven't talked for a couple because we've been so busy. And I asked Micah to join us here today because no matter what business you're in, you can only do better by being community-minded and membership-focused. So, Micah, how you doing, man? Dude, I am doing amazing. Uh, yeah, we had a good little pre-interview talk. It was good to catch up. He is saying a right now. I just watched Central Intelligence last night with my girlfriend, and it's like about Dwayne Johnson being in. Micah's never been like a geeky, nerdy kid. I mean, you're really a little nerdy. We're all, you know, we're that community. We're a little nerdy. I've been in this car, I haven't seen him in a couple of years, and he looks, he looks like a Viking. He's got like the pecs, the arms. So I'm just like, what, what happened? It's, it's been good, sir. <laughs> so, Micah, what's new? I mean, you talked about acquiring Wishlist member, Membrium's growing. Your support team is still phenomenal. I'm seeing a lot of your content being pushed online. What's, what's happening right now? So, yeah, I mean, we, I, I, you know, I've been running Membarium, which helps people build membership sites using WordPress. And in that case, Keep, that's the shirt I have on as a coincidence, which is a CRM. So people are building these high-end membership sites and those are clients like Tony Robbins uses it, Ryan Dice with Digital Marketer, they just moved back to it. So kind of the more complicated websites use Membarium. And then recently, yeah, I bought Wishlist Member personally, like I, I founded a new company to buy mm-hmm. Wishlist Member. And that one is much more of a beginner solution. So instead of the super advanced, it's like anybody can pick it up and just, they don't need any sort of other system. They just need that with WordPress mm-hmm. and then they can use PayPal or something. So basically what's what I've always wanted to do is serve that entire market. So not just the membership sites that are connected to keep but right all membership sites so um with wishlist i feel like now not only do we have that front end of the market where the beginners are coming in but if they want to get really serious like as serious as it possibly gets we can help them all the way through that process right that's fantastic so again this is something you've been thinking about for a while walk me through the process uh and why wishlist and you know <laughs> so it, it's kind of a, a long convoluted thing. I'll make it somewhat short, but basically Tracy, the owner of Wishlist, Tracy Childers, he and I had been bumping into each other for years, right? And we were initially just just like friends hanging out. And then at some point after I'd started Membarium, I ran into Tracy and he's like, oh man, we just made a a Wishlist for Infusionsoft. Basically, we found out we were kind of competitors, oh. um, not really meaning to do that. And so we just kind of remained friends. And it was weird because one time I got on a plane, I don't know if you saw the announcement, and he was sitting in the seat right next to me. So we ended up sharing an armrest. And it's like, what are the odds that, that this is happening? Like, it's, it's a small, small community, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so we just talked and I've always stayed in touch. And then it had been a few years, but when he and I reconnected recently, he was kind of 
they just done this big development cycle and they built an LMS and all this kind of stuff. And when I talked to him, he, he was just kind of, you know, he's been pushing so hard for so long. He was just a little bit burnt out. And so as we talked more, we kind of settled on this idea that I could take over his company because I was coming back into it like fresh and looking at what he had, which was really overpowered development and not much marketing. I was like, I'm really looking for a great development team for this type of product and right. love marketing. So it was a perfect right. fit. Right. And how do you plan to juggle that? Like, I know, I mean, I'm involved with a few companies too, but for the listeners that are involved, like, how do you have the time to run multiple companies? How are you going to avoid? Yeah. Great question. As far as me avoiding burnout, there's a couple pieces to that. One is that with Membarium, I had actually gotten it to a point of self-sufficiency where the team could really run it. And, and what I mean there is there were times when it didn't need anything from me for a long period of time. Like I would check in on it, but it didn't, nobody required me you know, for months on end, which is what you want. Right. Right. And so it's kind of, that's, that's what I want to do with all of these brands. And we now have about four brands, get them to run independently. But the other thing is now that we have multiple companies, I've actually been getting coaching on this. So I'm just learning, but having a, a, you know, multi-corporate strategy where one business hires all of the employees and leases them to the other businesses that actually will maybe operate, you know, and the business will interact with the customer and have the merchant account and then separate businesses that hold the IP. So, wow. you know, I, I went from kind of one entity, one bank account, keeping it simple on, on purpose because I had in the past, I had overcomplicated it and, and right. myself. So now I'm going back into that, but it's, it's kind of crazy. Cause I feel like I'm talking to lawyers and CPAs all the time. It's like every question that used to be a normal business question is, let me check with my attorneys and see the best way to do this, which I'm not a traditional, like I didn't go to college or anything. Yeah. That's not my mode. You know what I mean? Right. So how, I mean, so I love that structure and the strategy. Is that, why would you, I mean, I know I've had, and even I'm doing it now, I've got a team that I build that basically does the marketing for myself, some of my clients. So I partially understand that, but it sounds, I don't understand why you'd have a, maybe it's the same thing. Maybe I need to talk to my accountant and lawyer more. Because he's talking about one holding the IP and the other one being the agency. Basically, it's an agency that services your businesses. Is that? It, it is. Yeah. And the idea there is to consolidate, for example, the payroll yeah. tax. Account. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Instead of having them under, right. Instead of filing multiple tax filings. Yeah. yeah. And like for, for that one employee who might be working on three brands, they don't want three paychecks, you know? Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense. So then now when you say you've had the company running and or these brands running without you, what are the, I mean, I know that's the dream for a lot of people. One of our top interviews that we've done recently was something about building a team that can run without supervision. I think that was the headline of the podcast. I forget now, but I just know it was one of the top out of the last 10, 15. So it's clearly a hot topic. How do you, how do you do that? Yeah, it's, I think of it as the slow, fast way. So it was slow initially to empower the people. So instead of micromanaging or really even managing them, I just kept empowering people. And that took a lot of training and a bit of time, but a lot of, you know, enough one-on-one -on -one time with me to where I feel that they understand how I think and can make yep. a similar decision to mine. And then there was, there's one book in particular, and I bring it up because Ready I did <laughs> I love that one, actually. This is a management type one. Um, and that's, I've gotten into all this nerdy management stuff. I just went to a a course a couple of weeks ago in Phoenix called hire, lead and fire to the vision. So it's just about like hiring, leading and firing people. Like 
I used to think of this as the more corporate stuff, but now I'm just in that world where like, wow, those little tools and hacks are valuable when you have so many mm. people. But the book is, it's called It's Your Ship. Okay. Um, and it's kind of the story of a ship in the Navy where they were the worst performing and with a new captain and a new approach, they became one of the best performing. And basically all the captain did is he said, hey, instead of waiting for instructions, I want you to do what you think you should be doing and just right. And then all he had to say was go ahead. So instead of someone saying, hey, I think we should turn 30 degrees or whatever, they would say, I'm recommending we turn 30 degrees, we're turning 30 degrees. And if he wanted to interrupt it, he could, but he didn't have to. Right. Pretty soon all he was saying is go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Right. And everyone on the ship is saying to their subordinates, go ahead. And to their superior officers, they're just informing them. They're not asking permission. They're just saying, I thought it would be best to do this. I'm going to go ahead and do that. Right. I love that. I love that. And that change basically is, is what I feel one of the big things that created that there's one of my mentors also, he told me there's a few things he told me, but one of them was in touch, but out of reach, meaning you're in touch. Everyone's sending you data, but you're out of reach. They can't call you on the phone. Yeah. They don't expect when they text you that you're going to respond right then. And then the last principle, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of laying them on because it's oh. combo. my mentor mentioned having a tilted desk and he like we're remote, so we don't actually have desks, but he's like, imagine somebody comes into your office and they drop a problem on your desk and they try to walk out. Right. And that's what most employees yeah. do. I ran into this problem. You know, I can't fix it. Here you go. Right. The tilted desk is basically saying the desk is tilted away from you. Anything anybody comes in with, they leave with. Right. I love that. So, like it's basically, it sounds lazy, but it's almost like by me refusing to take actual responsibility for something and making sure other people are responsible and empowered to have that responsibility. You know, it kind of, I know this is like corny. Everybody knows this. You can read it in a business book, but the, the long work of getting that stuff done did ultimately pay off to where, you know, the team is competent enough to handle decisions better than me. And really at some point, like once I got about 10 employees, I realized I'm, I'm only 10% of the workforce. So right. me doubling my output is not as important as me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the most effective thing, highest ROI for your time is making the right hire, I think, at this point. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I had a buddy of mine, and he's been on the show a couple of times, and he, he built his membership site, Seven Figures, and sold it. And the, for him, it was, he got had a talk with this guy who said, you know, when you wake up, your to-do list on your list every day, as long as you have that to-do list every morning, you can't, your business can't run without you. You need to be able to wake up and not have anything to do for your business on your to-do list. Otherwise it's not, it's not an asset, you know, it's a job and you're the one running that. So that's, and that's why so many businesses that I bought and sold are earnouts because there's a, it's like, it's like taking over someone's job, you know, driving taxi, like they can leave, but if you've never driven before, they, then they got to teach you how to drive and supervise and make sure you know the routes and all this stuff. It's not, it's not just like selling them a machine that they just plug in and it just churns. So, um, yeah, I think that's fantastic. So, I mean, I've known your story. People listening may want to go back and listen to our other interviews, but can you talk about your progression in your career? Because what I love is you talked about now, you're getting into the corporate stuff and lawyers and CPAs and hiring to the vision and firing to the vision. Can you, this, this has clearly been a progression and in, in like a learning curve to getting to where you are now. Where were you when you started? Do you come, I already know the answer, but do you come from a family of entrepreneurs and where did you start? And looking back, what were the stages in terms of focus and skill sets that you've developed? 
Yeah. So I did not come from a family of entrepreneurs. And so it's kind of uphill as far as family support or anything like that goes. I'm sure a lot of people listening know what that's like. <laughs> um, when I first started, I would say I was really kind of a technician. You know, I thought, oh, I know how to build websites and, and, and that's what I need to like sell and push. And so I knew I wasn't even good at that, but I could Google stuff and figure it out. And so I went from that to eventually thinking, oh man, I got to learn more about marketing because I'm, you know, I, I was, in my mind, I was really naive and dumb looking back in fairness, you know, I was just learning as quick as I could, but that was basically the progress was, hey, I can do the service. Hey, now I need to be a really good marketer. And once I could sell and do the service, I had some success like, oh, but getting other people to do projects with me and getting them to do it the way I would do it and stuff like that. That was a whole, a whole learning curve where I don't think I was good at it. Like I tried doing an agency and it just wasn't for me. So when I started the, the software company, I had seen, I had gotten a glimpse of that model of you, instead of selling a service, you sell a product and you sell right. a subscription. And so when I was first building that, it was just it was painful and slow because every customer is paying like 47 a month and I'm spending a few hours with them up front. Yeah. That's not, that's not economical. Right. But I just, I, I saw the vision of, Hey, enough of these subscriptions and I'm free. And so I just kept doing that basically yeah. uh, until it grew. And then once it grew, I was, you know, in a simple way, building teams as far as like, I'm going to hire someone and train them on what I can do over time. And you just, so my first guy, Surge, who still works um, for me now, he's the president, actually. That's crazy. Um, yeah, he was, he was the, just a support agent. Now he's, yeah, I, I know him. I've been, I've, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, he's a good guy. So he shadowed me, right? And then has shadowed me through every single job. And that's a big part of, I think, the successes I'd read. I think it's Gino Wickman's Rocket Fuel, where he basically says, the founder is never really going to be good at being a visionary and an operator. That that person who can do both is very rare. And so right. you're the visionary, get a good operator. And so that's what Serge and I have is I have ideas. He's a good operator. And and we're almost like only one single person, but the two minds in one person makes an effective leader. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a big part of it is Serge is kind of he's my catch-all, you know, if I'm gone and, and some question that's never been answered before, nobody knows they go to surge and he can make a, a reasonable decision. You know, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I heard that you need three people to grow a company. You need a financial person, a product person and a marketing person. And so it kind of sounds, you've got that between you and your team. Naval, I don't know if you know Naval Ravikant. I love his content. He's always talking about if you can learn to build or learn to sell. And if you can do both, you're unstoppable. You know, that that's really, and it's almost kind of like what you're saying, you've got the vision and know how to build and where we need to build to, to where the market's going and, and, um, or sorry. Yeah. And he knows how to keep the, the team together. So, yeah. so let's backtrack to this. So first it was delivering quality consistently. Then it was learning how to get customers and acquire them. <clears throat> then it was working with other people. And then it became finding ways to leverage yourself either through software or through other people. And then it was a big part of that was actually understanding how to manage that objectively and empower other people. If I, if I, did I miss anything? Is that, is that fairly accurate? Yeah, I think so. And, and the empowerment was the main thing. Cause I see a lot of business owners with teams, but they manage them rather than empower them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you'll just manage them forever if you're not empowering them. So do you have, uh, is there any guide that you can give if someone's struggling right now of 
they've got a team that they're micromanaging if that's their biggest complaint. I mean, you and I both have run mastermind groups and how much of those conversations are around employees. So any, yeah. How, any, any tips, any advice? Yeah, I would say it kind of comes down to expectation. So if you expect that your team is going to need to be managed, you're going to hire people and you're going to treat them that way. So like you're going to hire people who need management, you're going to treat them that way. But if you expect that you're going to hire like critical thinking individuals who are going to maybe argue with you at times, you know, you have to have a cultural fit. So the culture stuff is a huge, huge, huge part of that, uh, like core values and all that kind of stuff. But assuming that's in place, I think it really is a, it's a lot of expectation and that comes out in your language patterns, in your timing, in the assignments you give. So for example, for me, instead of saying, I want a website, I want it to have these pages, I blah, 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 blah. Uh, a few weeks ago, I just asked one of our team members, you know, <coughs> hey, we need a website and you have this done in seven days. And the project actually didn't go very well. And I had to come in and clean it up and stuff like that. But, but that's just an example of how I do it. And oftentimes well, when I say, hey, I need this, can you do it? And they say, yes, I don't give them any details. And they come back and, and do much better than I would have, you know, outlined for them. And so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that's pretty much what I'm doing is I'm saying, Hey, we need this done. Can you do it? And if they can, I give them more projects. If they can't, like in this case, when it didn't happen the way I envisioned, I just made a mental note of like, okay, I can't really give that person actual projects. Okay. So I'm, I'm not going to work directly with that person at all. They can work under someone else, but there's no need for me to talk to this person because when I do, I, I guess what I'm saying is I need someone around me who can run with it. So if you right. have a business where you're managing people, it's very likely you know, that you set it up that way. So you can try to make the shift. It could also be that they're the wrong people. Yep. And so changing your hiring funnel to where you're not saying what's your resume and blah, you know, all this kind of stuff, but hiring to performance and, and yeah. work history, giving them a challenge of like, okay, an example of a project we might have is this, you know, before I even hire you, what would you do with this? Right. And that's the, the interview, right? Actual right. throwing crap. The thing. Yeah. 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 Cause some people interview so well, right. And for a mishire, mishire can be incredibly expensive uh, for those that aren't aware, because not only do you have to train, are you, it takes the time to figure it out and you spent all this time, energy and money training them and onboarding them. If it doesn't work out, you let them go. They may not feel, they may feel some type of way about it, may cause friction. Then you have to go up and rehire again. So yeah, I feel like that I'm, I'm out, I'm out of the training for me personally. I'm out of the training business. I learned that lesson the hard way. I need people that have done it. Are you fan KPIs, quarterly goals, sprints, OKRs? What do you, how do you make sure the team are actually working? So there are parts of the team that I feel like are easy to monitor, like support. You can see the tickets coming and all that kind of stuff, right? Marketing is a little bit more challenging right now. I myself am running marketing sprints. So because it's a little bit of a bigger team and a creative process and new things, we were trying to manage it in other ways. And I just does, decided, you know, we all have to get on Zoom together at least once a day for about an hour. And then between those sprints, we can give assignments through Slack and that sort of a thing. But yeah, I found it's, it's so easy to have miscommunication and misalignment and things like that, that at least for marketing right now, that's how we're running it. Generally speaking, though, I love the scaling up model. I love the EOS model where 
yeah, you're doing annual, quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily meeting rhythms. And there are some numbers involved. I like the concept of the big three where everybody's got three main things that they're working on and they're not equal. So like number one could be 60% of their time and effort. Number two could be 30 and the last one could be 10. And then each one of those has a number and the numbers can be performance-based or results-based. Performance-based means like I made this many sales calls. Results-based means I brought in this much revenue. So like I should say activity-based or results-based, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as everyone has their big three and they've got those numbers attached to it, the numbers for me are really about trending. So when somebody reports their numbers, I just want to hear, is this up or down from last week? And is the overall trend for the past few weeks up or down, right? So that's kind of how I look at it. And in those you know, the annual meeting is strategy. The quarterly meetings are strategy for that quarter. The monthly meetings are financial review and training. The weekly meetings are kind of just like boots on the ground, getting stuff done. So every quarter we decide, here's what we're going to do. And we've got about 13 weeks to execute. And so those 13 weekly meetings are like check-ins on those projects. I mean, I, I go nuts and get nerdy about all the strategic planning and that sort of stuff, actually. Yeah. So I probably went off a cliff there, but hopefully that. No, no, no. Say, so I don't know if you know this or not. Um... But we haven't talked in a couple of years. Q3 2020, I spent 50 grand of my own money because everyone was arguing about the science of this, the science of that. And I heard all the like millions of people unemployed. And I knew you and I both know that the coaching industry is full of sharks, people that have no results, no background, no expertise. They do like a weekend thousand dollar course. And now bet your child's future and their education and your medical bills on my knowledge with, you know, with my little piece of paper certification. And um, so I spent 50 grand to figure out what does the science say are critical success factors for business. And we found nine factors. I call them the critical eight because the ninth you can't do a lot about. That's the government and economic conditions. You can't, an individual business owner is not going to do a lot to change the economy or the government on its own. And also we, our research found that irrespective of what economy and government you're under, all you can really do is focus on these other eight categories. And so they are self-efficacy strategic planning, market intelligence, market marketing strategy, sales strategy and skill, money management, business operations, and business intelligence. And all of them are fairly self-explanatory, but some people, the, the, the business operations is things like cybersecurity, your legal compliance, right? Your meeting rhythms, like you talked about that, that's all in there. So it's just been interesting. Every time I talk to people, it kind of fits in to those. Now, my next question for you to follow up would be about habits. What are the most important habits you feel that have served you through your business career? And are they different at different stages? That I think that is such a great question, like the habits thing, because all the other stuff, all the good ideas and tactics really wouldn't, I wouldn't have had the energy for or the creativity for uh, without the habits. And so my main habit, number one is exercise just because being on the computer all the time. And before I had gotten overweight, I'd gotten bad posture that was starting to affect everything. Right. And then I mm -hmm. am drinking too much caffeine to try to sustain my computer energy. So I feel like for any nerd, fitness is critical, just yeah. totally critical. So, so that's a big one because that's, and I mean, you know, this, you're a fit guy, but just being fit and sitting on a call is different, you know, than than the other way around. And I know, cause I spent hundreds of hours sitting at my computer, drinking Dr. Pepper every week. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, so that's one. And uh, I won't hammer at home too much, but no. uh, the, the other one I think is motivation. So 
every single morning and as much as I can throughout every single day, I'm listening to motivational stuff. Even if I'm feeling pretty good, I'm still listening to stuff. And especially though, if I'm not feeling good, instead of going to work, I'm, I'll go into motivation phase and, you know, motivation, inspiration, whatever words you want to use there. I'm, I'm going into anything that makes me feel positive, happy, uplifted. Sometimes that is like actual positivity, like hooray. Other times it's just, it's just consuming information. So sometimes just reading an audiobook or studying anything makes me feel, it's almost like being in a positive energy. And then when I come into work, all of my decisions are in that positive energy rather than in a, like a sick or a negative state. Yeah. I love it. So those are the two big things anymore. I guess the last would be maybe just strategy. I've always been, I, I hate dumb work. And so I just kind of refuse to do any dumb work. And if I feel like I'm doing dumb work, I'll take the time to sit back and strategize, which can be hard to do. There were times when I was, you know, not able to pay my bills, let's say at the time. And it's like, I need to go for a few hours and think, which was hard when I'm thinking, oh, every hour is money and I need and you to got kids that you got to feed. That's right. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, there's, you know, if I have my, my fitness and health and I'm motivated and then I'm thinking strategically, I feel like I'm going to choose better actions that will lead to better results rather than just grinding, you know? Mm -hmm. I love that. Can you define dumb work? Yes. So as, from, as an owner, cause in a company, somebody needs to scrub the toilets like that, you know, like that's, it's not, it's not, this isn't a classist thing. It's not social hierarchies, but as the owner, when you say dumb work, it's just because with, and I want to clarify this because as the owner, this is even why I got into business coaching. So many people rely on you. Like not only are you feeding your kids, your family, your staff and their kids. I had a guy that worked with me for five, six years. And he, he asked me, I think two years in when working with me, uh, he said he wanted to plan to get married and wanted to ask about his, wanted to do a performance review because he wanted to know what the next year of his life looked like. So, you know, as the owner, there's a lot of weight on your back. And if you make the wrong decision, like businesses do fail. So, you know, just, just want to preface that because the way you laughed and, and I want people listening to this to know you have to really respect all rules. When I was in Japan, small sidebar, when I was in Tokyo, I was doing consulting and I worked at like Shinsei Bank and Tokyo Electron, Johnson Johnson and stuff. And I remember I was leaving the Shinsei Bank headquarters one day and there was all these people showing up and I was like, what's going on? Like, oh, there's a conference. I'm like, oh, conference. Yeah. From all the all the, all the like satellite offices. I'm like, oh, what's it about? They go, oh, they have the head janitor speaking to all the custodian workers. And I was like, that is so, so dumb. And I'm like, well, like, how, what do you need to have a conference about scrubbing toilets for? And I was very ignorant in that. And then I realized, especially in living in Japan for three years, the depth of nuance that these people have. Like when someone's been doing that, it's, it's, I remember hearing uh, someone talk about it. He goes, yeah, but he doesn't see it just as scrubbing toilets. He's, he sees his work in line with the vision of the company and helping the J Japanese economy run better from like just the paradigm shift from I'm just scrubbing toilets uh, to like, I am my, you know, I am helping people live healthier lives and my, my work impacts the whole economy and my, my society. So anyways, just why I say there was no dumb. I realized then that the foolishness was in the mindset, not, not in the work. So. I'm going to shut up now. Your turn. <laughs> no, no, it's a good point because yeah, it's, it's not saying, oh, certain work is beneath me. It's more saying, you know, even if I'm going to scrub a toilet, what's the smart way to scrub it rather than the dumb way, you know? Right. 
Right. And so that, that's more, yeah, what I'm referring to is there's, there's a dumb way to do most things that's going to result in more work for you later. And there's a smart way to do it where it's going to result in less work for you later. And so as a business owner, I see that as instead of jumping in and solving a problem myself, I'm going to make sure somebody comes with me to solve the problem. And I'm explaining why and how I'm solving the problem so that they understand it. So I think dumb work typically is when you're doing something in a one-off fashion, that should be one to many, that should be repeatable. Mm, I love that. Yeah, it was, I think, I don't, I think you were the one that said this. This is back to keep and future soft days, but it was, you said something like, if you're doing something more than three times, you should automate it. And in this respect, it's not even automate. You should create documentation around it to make sure you're doing it effectively. Right. Cause again, that's the whole, I love, I love this. This is great. So, okay. And where do you think the future of this is going? I mean, you've got, you're so in deep. You've obviously the last couple of years have pushed so many people online. What have you seen, especially because you've got like thousands of membership sites now, you get to see the back end of all this and the data. Where are things going in terms of, well, I, I'll, I'll ask another, I'll, I'll ask a follow-up question. Where do you see things are going online? Is it getting easier? Is it more acceptable? Is it harder? Are people expecting more? Is it... Yeah, it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, there are a lot more solutions. So, you know, software like mine, there's probably hundreds now. So there's more confusion for somebody who's trying to solve a problem, I think, just because there are so many solutions. And then when they do go to solve that problem, I think the bar has been raised because a lot of these solutions just do more. They're intuitive. And so instead of, oh, I'm going to put some content online and sell it, it's like, well, that content needs to be gamified and it needs to be you know, teased out on social media and you, you got to have all these best practices, which before, if you would have had these best practices, you're ahead of the game. And now it's kind of like, you know, just to get started. So I think that's, that's part of it is the technology has gotten way easier to where people can build pretty good user experiences pretty quickly. Where, where I think it's going is on the one hand, immediately people are looking for simplification. So instead of I'm going to buy these 10 tools to build this experience, they're looking for one tool to do the experience. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of SaaS products that try to do that. And so that's a big movement is just simplification of like, okay, the technology has really matured. Now, instead of me having, you know, the business owner having to cobble it all together, they can get an out-of-the-box solution that provides a really great experience, right? Now, that being said, so can everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so can all of their competitors and whatever niche they're in. So I see a lot with the membership stuff where people are doing these good hybrid models of, okay, yeah, we have some courses and information, but we're doing a better job of surrounding it with office hours and live events and support and, you know, groups and accountability partners and, and all these different things to help the user actually consume and transform from the information. You know, they, if they buy a course about basketball, they, at the end of it, want to have transformed into a better basketball player, mm-hmm. not just, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so companies are getting better at providing a transformational experience with the multimedia where I think it is really going. And I don't have a, this is more just a general direction, but I think all of these membership sites where they're trying to make videos about whatever pretty soon, soon as in already, <laughs> yeah, adopters. Yeah, for early adopters, it's already happening. But what I see is that this is going to become kind of like the matrix and it's going to become virtual reality training. So you're going to put on your Oculus headset 
and you're going to go into a virtual reality situation and you're going to consume and learn in an immersive experience mm-hmm. what you want to learn. And then you're going to go out and go on your way. So instead of, you know, listening to audio, watching videos, whatever, I think in the future, it's going to be more immersive and, and those other things will still exist. Mm-hmm. And so I believe the business owners of today providing training, they're still going to have their membership site, but in the near future, they're going to say, well, how do I recreate that as a VR or an AR type of experience before my competition does. Right, right. So it's like, again, in a, in a coaching space, it's like, how do I do a group coaching with people all over the world without people having to get on a plane? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. To be in the same room, essentially. And of course there's bells and whistles and stuff. I think there's been like Bieber and Travis Scott, they did some online events and it's like, they did more in like one day than they used to do in an entire tour with this because they're just the ability of it to scale and the reach, right? There was no geographical barrier for it. So I think that's, I think that's kind of what you're speaking to there. Now I want to ask about the other part because there's, you know, every business obviously needs a few hundred, well, maybe not a small boutique agency, but typically most businesses need a volume of customers and they need to retain them long-term. You're not going to really have a big business off of one-off sales. Can you speak to building a community and engage community. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go back just for context to, I think it was Stu McLaren who first coined this, where he's saying like, they come for the content, they stay for the community. So often people are building a course that, you know, is, is, is somewhat targeted. You know, you're going to learn X, Y, and Z or, or whatever. But then after the course, they're everyone's coming into the community afterward. And so people sell it in different ways, but the community really is a, a spot for people to get their individual nuanced questions answered. You mentioned, you know, mm. we've both been in masterminds and this, and the discussions in there are about employees. And it's because it's like, where else do you get those answers? And I think a lot of these communities are the same thing. You know, if you're one of the main like shotgun shooting enthusiasts or, or whatever, like where else are you going to get the little tiny tips that no right. no from right. other enthusiasts who are just ahead of you. So that's, that's at least how I see the community aspect. And if people do it right, it becomes, you know, like you're saying, it, it becomes the bulk of the people who are renewing, who are kind of like the cash engine of the business. But yeah, I do think, you know, people don't, it's not very effective to sell a community. Typically it's effective to sell a course with either an upgrade into the community or the community included or something of that nature. Mm, okay. And now let me put this on you. What's your plan? Is there a plan to bridge the wishlist and Membrium community? Is that, yeah. Yeah. So we created a, a new brand called Membershipper. And that is the, not only the employment company where all of the staff from, you know, these different places are coming into, but it's also going to be the community. So the idea is, you know, if someone's a Membershipper, they join this community to basically grow their membership. And one, one interesting thing about this is I had written some like customer core values, like, Hey, our customers are going to vibe with these things. And I showed it to my marketing guy and he thought I meant it was our internal core values. And so we ended up using it for both. So those core values are now our internal team core values. And they're also what we're going to use to market to customers to say, Hey, if this resonates with you, you're a membershipper you should be part of this community. And in that group, yeah, we're going to have the Membarium people, the wishlist people, and any other, you know, anybody basically interested in the membership topic. I love it. 
because it supersedes. It's not about the tool. It's about the niche. It's about that concept of running a membership. So whether it's wishlist or Iberium, people can share. And like you said, if someone's further down the road, that's fine. And some people, they can just take a really basic site and scale it really big. They may not need the bells and whistles. So I think that's, uh, I, I definitely understand where you're going with that. What would you say to someone that's either starting or got a membership start site up and running and they're trying to grow it? You just started speaking about having membership or about growing your online site. What are some of the most effective strategies? Is it about being seen everywhere? Is it about, you know, having a fancy sales page? Is it about webinars? I, I, I know there's people that are going to be watching this. They're going to have that question. And I might get questions. Why didn't you ask him about how to grow a membership site considering that he's done thousands? So can you, can you give us the mini seminar on this here? Yeah, I would say the number one thing is, is copywriting because you're really only dealing with one person at a time. And you taught me this and I love this, the idea of the bug in the rug mm. where you might have, you know, and, and for those of you listening, it's, it's when you look down at the rug, you see the design of the rug, but the bug who's crawling through the rug they only see what's right around them, like the walls of fiber and, and the dust or whatever. And so your customer, they don't know Jack. They just know the page that they're on that day or the email they got that day. And so even if your business is good, if that email is not written well, or if your sales page isn't written well, and, and whether it's a webinar or a video or a page, it's what are the words? Like how persuasive is it? Well, so, you know, anybody who's having trouble with sales, I would just recommend copywriting because it's it's totally the game changer. And I've had this personal experience. It could have even been you who had recommended to me at one point, like Gary Bensavenga mm -hmm. and some stuff when I was having trouble selling a course and I, I switched on my copywriting hat and ended up blowing that thing out. Same course. I didn't change the course. Mm -hmm. I didn't even change the design of the page. No, just like the headline and the call to action. And it just started converting. And so like, obviously you have to have traffic and so on, but I'm saying you know, most, most membership site owners I know would definitely benefit from sales, copywriting, like direct response, marketing, copywriting, mm. Dan Kennedy, Jay Abraham, John Carlton, all that kind of stuff. Mm, I love that because then for people again, that are wondering, well, why would writing be so important? It's, it's almost like, it's easy to send someone an audio clip. We talked about before being, what was it being in, being in touch, but unreachable. It's, I think it was Mark Cuban who was saying that he, he hates meetings and he makes everyone communicate with him in email and not even send voice messages or videos because they have to think through everything and put it into an email. Otherwise, it's going to be this massive long thing. So it's almost a way to synthesize their thoughts. And so what you're talking about the sales copyrights, really getting in touch with who am I selling to, why are they buying, and what are the reasons that are going to cause them to buy. You know, Glenn Livingston always talks about frequently asked questions are often frequently answered questions. So what are the points of difference? What are the points of difference to talk about that are going to cause someone to actually open up their wallet and buy? And uh, you mentioned Gary Bensavenga. From him, one of the things I got was problems are markets, not demographics. So the problem is the market. It's not soccer moms, 38 to whatever. That's describing a type of person experiencing a problem many people might be experiencing. And so that's kind of where people get caught up. Well, I got to make a target market, but it should really be the target problem and then which segments of the people experiencing that am I targeting? And I think that when you figure out and can get the sales, whether you're going to do a webinar or whatever, that's, you, need, you need to script it. You can't just show up and wing it. Um, I always say, explain how I feel that advertising develops. Back in the day, you know, all of us were traveling salesmen. Unless you were like a grocer or a blacksmith, you'd be on your horse and buggy going from town to town trying to find more customers. It's a pre 
post office and maybe there's a, a, an, a, an ambitious sales rep one day and he's trying to, he's got a baby uh, on the way and he's trying to figure out how do I get through more doors. And you realize every time I knock on a door, I end up having the same sort of conversation. Maybe I can write this down in a letter and pay some kids to run ahead of me to deliver the letter. So when I get to doors, I can go through them quicker. And then he realizes that some of these people, they're just ready to buy. He doesn't even have to say anything. They already understood it. So he adds an order for him. And now he's not even going to do it. He's just showing up in town, delivering letters. Those are being delivered and bringing it back. And marketing is that. Jeff Walker talks about that. It's a sideways sales letter, right? Where you break that up into pieces. And that's where you hear top of funnel, middle of funnel, funnel, bottom of funnel. It's helping people walk through kind of the psychological phases of that. So it sounds like people like, if that sounds like what you're saying is creating the community and putting your stuff into a course with some bells and whistles isn't really the challenge right now. The bigger challenge is really being able to speak to people on a one-on-one basis at scale in a way that makes them want to join your program. Oh, you're mute. Are you on mute? Oh yeah, I was sorry. And I was going to say, yeah, exactly. And if anybody hasn't experienced that sensation of like your page doing the sales work for you, it's magic. Like yeah. if you can sell in person, like you're saying, the first time you realize like, wow, I, I put my pitch into a video and it's working. And I know that if I send a hundred people, I'm going to get five sales or whatever. It's it's total game changer. And that's why I say like most people are having problem with sales. They think, oh, is it my leads? Is it this? Do I need to switch to click funnels? What software should I use? And it's like your, your messaging, you know, your messaging, if it was working, you would know it. And yeah. then you would want to scale it. Trying to scale yeah. messaging that's not working is is all effort. You know? Yeah, I love that. I don't know if we were recording and we were just talking before, but you were talking about the early days of Membirium and that, you know, you were, it's, it was like $47 a month and it was a slow, almost painful process because you were doing a lot of calls with these people and it's only $47 a month and you're investing a lot of time in each client and each client customer. But what you learned from that, this again, this is where some of the, the best marketers and salespeople are door-to-door, have door-to-door experience. And it's like, from doing that, you gain the knowledge and experience that allowed you to create tools that it might not convert as high as you doing one-on-one, but you can send 100,000 people to a video. You can send 100,000 people to a sales page. So less might buy, but you're hiking with your kids and you're still generating sales at the same time. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Mike, this is such a fantastic call. For people who are listening to it, they probably want to listen to it again. There's so many great nuggets in here, and I want to be respectful of your time. So is there anything I didn't ask you I should have asked? I guess the one thing on my mind is about the learning management space. So we did Membarium and Wishlist, but we spun out of Wishlist something called Course Cure. So it's a learning management plugin now that is that we're going to build to be a full-fledged learning management system. But that's just been interesting to me because I thought wishlist was like the starter part of this whole equation where new people would buy wishlist. But it's as we're looking at it more, I'm realizing more and more like, oh, it's course cure and it's the LMS that people want initially. They just want to build a simple course before they want all this membership functionality. And so mm. that's the one thing that comes up is just and and I think for those of you listening, you might have a a product, like a flagship product or a subscription product, a strong product, but finding that the thing that people will buy first from you or the thing that they want to buy before that can be really powerful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. Okay. 
I love that. I love that. Mike, uh, I always love our conversations. I miss talking to you every week. This is fantastic. Again, if people want to learn more, if they want to get in touch, where should they? Uh, you can go to membershipper.com and our different brands are listed there. And any one of them, you can ask a question of support and they'll they'll answer it. Or if you you know want to say, hey, I, I saw this from Micah. Can you ask Micah this? They'll forward it to me. So yeah, just any of our support channels. Uh, we really We really try to provide great support. So those should work for you. Awesome. Awesome. Micah, it's been such an honor and a pleasure, man.